The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the results are in. The most influential annual art market report has just been published. So what does it tell us about the effects of a year of COVID-19 on the art market? I talked to Claire McAndrew, the author of the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report. Also in this episode, I talked to the scholar of Dada and Surrealism, Dawn Addis, about her book on Marcel Duchamp, and we address the debate about who made Fountain, the famous upturned urinal. And in this episode's work of the week, Jakob Fenger, a member of the Danish artist collective Superflex, discusses a work by the Brazilian artist Sildo Mireles. Before all that, the art newspaper is the media partner for The Healing Arts, a campaign responding to the so-called mirror pandemic, the mental health crisis caused by COVID-19. Next week, a series of conversations are being launched by the arts company Culture Runners as part of the World Health Organization's solidarity events. The five-day programme accompanies a charity auction by Christie's on the 25th of March of works donated by Anthony Gormley, Ragnar Kjartensen, Yoshitomo Nara and William Kentridge, among others. Gormley, Kjartensen and Kentridge are all also part of the events programme, which you can follow at culturerunners.com slash healing-arts-london or on the art newspaper's YouTube channel. Now, the report that's widely regarded as the most authoritative annual guide to trends in the art market has just been published, written by the cultural economist Claire McAndrew, founder of Arts Economics, and published by Art Basel and UBS. This year's report inevitably reflects a difficult and transformative year following the COVID-19 pandemic. It also includes a survey looking at the behaviours of high-net-worth art collectors. So what does it tell us? I spoke to Claire McAndrew to find out. Claire, we knew that Last year was going to be a devastating year for the art market. Can you give us a flavour of just how devastating? Um, I think it, it was a really interesting year, actually, for the art market. It was obviously hugely challenging for a lot of businesses operating in it. And I think it probably wasn't a surprise to anybody that sales were down. Um, they declined by 22% to just over 50 billion. And I think it was probably pretty inevitable that was going to happen with businesses being closed and all the fairs cancelled. People couldn't get around. And I mean, the art, the art trade in particular is so vulnerable, I suppose, to this particular crisis because it's been so reliant on, you know, events and travel and its whole framework is built on discretionary um, purchasing. It's kind of non-essential purchasing. Um, I, I think that probably the biggest surprise of the year was how resilient a lot of the businesses were. Um, you know, we checked in um, at the six-month point this year as well, and gallery sales were down 30 to 40 percent. So so they really, um, the art trade really did kind of um, ramp it up in the second half of the year. I think people realized this was something they were going to be living with and dealing with for a while. So they really pulled out the stops and, and found ways to um, maintain exhibitions and trading, you know, mainly online. Um, so I think it, it, it was quite a positive year in some respects. Um, and the art market, I think, did 
much better than perhaps it could have done, even though it was a, a very difficult year. So what percentage of sales are now online then, Claire? Well, when we looked at it, this is including um, sales made by traditional galleries and dealers and auction houses online in, in various capacities, whether it's through an email, but just no, with no uh, visit to the actual gallery or premises. It's 25% of sales. So it was near, just over 12 billion last year. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing change, but then not that surprising again, because, I mean, they didn't have many other options. You know, people were buying online because there was literally no other ways to to access uh, galleries and auction houses during the year. Right. So, I mean, it's doubled what was there before. I mean, do you have any sense of how it compares to other industries or is there even any point in comparing the art market to other industries in terms of that sort of digital physical balance in terms of, you know, you know, is it completely unique in a sense? Um, I think it is. I think, the, you know, when you compare it to retail, it actually exceeded, it was lagging behind retail for years. And this is the first year it's exceeded estimates for general retail. And they, they do vary from anything from, you know, 15 to, to 30%, depending on the region and depending on whose statistics you use. But I think this, this is the same with luxury sectors generally. Um, you know, people were, were buying online where they never had before, you know, and, and this, was, this was the case with the art market as well. There was, you know, I think a lot of businesses were were relying on their existing client base, but there was people within that client base that were buying for the very first time online. They'd bought offline before, but with a lack of opportunity to access fairs and exhibitions and live sales at auction, they, they were buying online for the first time. Can you get any sense of the demographics of that online buying? Because, you know, are we seeing younger collectors as one would expect going online or for instance are there sort of boomer generation collectors who have now been forced online as well um, I think we, we've seen that I mean it's not just this year we've seen it in all of the we do these um, surveys with investor watch UBS investor watch every year of high net worth collectors and it's always it's the millennials uh, collectors and gen z collectors that are the most active to be honest across all all buying channels, but particularly online. Um, but I think I think 2020 was quite a unique year because you know it's an access issue. People of all ages didn't have any um, access to live uh, versions of sales, so they were buying online. Um, you know, it, it's still there was a huge amount of activity. One of the most busy channels for buying was actually online auctions. When this, these surveys we did, this is across 10 different markets and it was about 2,500 high net worth collectors, but nearly half of them had bought at an online auction during the year, which is a kind of fairly substantial amount. Gallery OVRs were the next one, 47%, and about 45% of them had bought through an art fair OVR. So there was a lot of activity going on. And apart from buying, you know, 80 or 90% of these people we surveyed were browsing and, and actively engaged with these platforms. So people had time, they had money that they perhaps didn't have before. I think there was less outlets perhaps for other types of luxury spending. You know, there was less people going on expensive holidays and trips and things. So um, billionaire wealth, we saw this in the report as well. I did a, some um, analysis of the billionaire figures and it's amazing to see that billionaire wealth escalated from that period from March to December um, using the Forbes data billionaire wealth increased by about 30% and at the very the very top end even much more than that and that's very different from the last um, global financial crisis where high net worth wealth actually dropped this is a very different crisis people had more money at the high end and more time and less outlets for other purchasing right yeah i mean it's it's funny isn't it those figures because on on a sort of human level i'm sort of repulsed <laughs> 
by this idea that that you know while the world has been suffering billionaires money has gone through the roof yeah but from the art market point of view that's a that's good news well i mean it is it's it certainly helped the market from from having a not being a worse recession than it could have been i think that that really did help the fact that and i mean these high net worth collectors do um, affect a lot of the trends in the art market, but but it's been a very specific crisis. You know, there's people that were economically vulnerable going in in certain industries um, were the ones that suffered the most, and it's the same actually in the art market as well. And I don't think we've seen the full extent of that. I think there was a lot of businesses that were in very financially precarious positions going into the crisis. Um, a lot of them managed to get through the year uh, by you know, relying heavily on their client bases and also through the government supports that were available. So income supports and lending and, and financial aid. And I think that the worry going forward will be how these businesses survive, particularly this year is a, is a very unusual year because it's kind of a transitional year. It's not back to normal. Things haven't kicked in again. You know, events are still piecemeal, if at all. Um, and people are still under under pressure um, financially. And these, these support and the aid that they had last year has all basically dried up in many areas. So this is going to be a really tricky period. And I think I do fear that we might see some more um, closures of businesses this year. If they're going to happen, they might happen rather than last year. They'll be happening this year and into next year as well. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? We're still in the pandemic and the, those government support networks are still in place. And I guess that's, that's the thing is that, that it, the government simply cannot keep doing that forever. And, and I suppose, you know, we're at that point where the vaccine programmes are starting to kick in and there's so much relying for all businesses, but, but art businesses too, on the success of vaccine rollouts, the ending yes, of lockdowns sure. and, and something like a return to normal, right? Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. And I mean, it's not just, you know, when people are allowed to travel and things like that, it's when they're willing to do so. I mean, we did, we did see it, you know, just anecdotally and also in the surveys, you know, there was a high proportion of people very willing to, to travel. Um, you know, we, we did these th- this year in 2021 but when we did the surveys in December um, and I think you know if even if we'd done them in January you might have got a completely different sentiment there's so many waves and, and ups and downs in in this whole pandemic that it's it's you know you're all at best you're getting a when you ask people their sentiment about travel you're getting a, a, a position at a point in time because um, it's so evolving there's so many stops and starts is it right that by doing that survey of high net worth individuals, you also, as well as sort of quantitative stuff, you're able to get some qualitative data as well so that you can actually find out about the kind of mood among that group of people? And in the sense that, you know, um, I noticed in the report that you said that there was a sort of sense in which high net worth individuals wanted to support the art world more than perhaps it might have been true of the, of the recession in 2009, for instance. Absolutely. No, I think this is a very different um, recession again. I think, you know, in say, for example, in 2009, it was perceived as a very financial crisis, which it was. Um, whereas this time around, it's a, it's a social and, and a health crisis. And um, I think a lot of people are out to support their, their support galleries and artists, which they know are, are struggling. So it's a, it's a completely different thing. I think to be showing off a, a fantastic piece that you just bought in 2009 was not the right thing to be doing for a lot of kind of fabulously wealthy people, even, you know, whereas it's a different context here because you're, you know, people are supporting, actively supporting the arts. And we, we do ask them about their preferences and their worries. And I think, you know, it's amazing to see that the majority of collectors said that this pandemic has actually increased their interest and their appetite for collecting. Um, which is a very positive thing, I think, to come out of it, given the amount of distractions and kind of bad news that's been around. Right. What about the sense 
uh, among high net worth individuals of a kind of newly transparent art world because i noticed there was this statistic about how the collectors want to there to be price transparency or at least want to know when they go online how much an artwork is rather than the the very traditional system which is that you see wonderful exhibitions and then you have to approach the dealer and find out how much they were so that a sort of price transparency which we talk about all the time on here is there a sort of a new era of transparency do you think I do. I think this is a very uh, positive thing to come out of this year. Um, and th- it's through the, the focus on the online segment, you know, through that being the main access channel. People do like visible prices. I mean, 72% of the collectors that we surveyed said it was essential or important. And it was really interesting. I, You know, people kind of focus on new collectors, that being important for, for new collectors, you know, who might not have an idea of valuations. But in actual fact, in these surveys, it was a much higher percentage thought it was important or essential with the really established collectors, people that had been collecting for more than 20 years ranked even higher. So it's it's important for, for across the board. And I think people, this is hopefully something that will um, be a more permanent transition. I mean, hopefully including offline as well. You know, it's not just an online thing. Um, people people do want to know even the range of, of value of works, you know, they, they just to, to help guide them through their their kind of collecting and there's such a massive of um, offerings online at the moment as well it's difficult that that has been one thing that's come out of the year as well a lot of collectors saying more anecdotally that it's it's difficult for things to stand out or or to, to find things in, in a kind of an increasingly vast dense range of 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 offerings from galleries often presented in not the same way but but they're coming at them through through similar channels so it, it becomes more difficult everything's accessible but it becomes more difficult to find things at the same time I want to talk a bit about the auction market because in the report you say that that Greater China is is now the biggest auction market in the world or at least in this year. Is that simply a matter of there were fewer months of lockdown in Greater China or is that is this a wider trend is this more significant than just an anomalous year? I think it's interesting. China had obviously a very difficult start to the year. Um, so it was the first region to see all the, the major lockdowns and the major fairs and everything cancelled. But it did have some some very strong auction sales and even actually some good fairs in the last quarter of the year. So the, the, even though the market fell in, in China, it was you know only by 12% as a whole. So it was kind of half the fall of, of the US, for example. And I think what was unusual looking at auction sales in China is that um, it's always been a very, very strong market under, say, f- about 5 million. But last year, they had some very, um, not, not a huge volume of them, but they had some very high price sales. So it had nudged ahead of the US, I think for the first time that I can certainly remember, in that 10 million plus segment as well. So some very, very highly priced works in China. And it's then that was combined with the fact that it was a tough year elsewhere in the auction sector. But I think one thing that's important to remember with these statistics is this is public auction sales only. So um, that slice of the pie um, really uh, shrank quite a bit this year. So a lot of vendors did switch to selling privately. Now, whether that was through a gallery or also through an auction house and, and private sales through auction houses are also seen as a as a kind of a, a preferred method sometimes when markets are down or, or uncertain. Um, and in 2020, I think it was a lot got to do with just opportunities to sell through live sales were reduced. But, you know, private sales made up a, a, a growing portion of that auction market and they're not permitted in, China, in mainland China at all. So this this um, larger share that China has, it's a larger share of a much smaller 
part of the art market this year. So this is how it kind of plays out in terms of, of overall share. The dealer sector in China is still a very small share of total sales there as well. Let's talk about art fairs because, the, you know, the big headline really for last year was this sort of spate of cancelled art fairs. And it's been such a high profile part of the art world over recent years. How badly did they suffer? I, well, I mean, it was a, that was a huge change in the art market. That was one of the biggest things in the art market this year was the, the you know, over 60 percent of fairs that were scheduled were cancelled. And some managed to have kind of alternative events or smaller events. But most fairs, most big fairs were cancelled. And there was a massive shift, therefore, in how how sales are divvied up by dealers. You know, fair sales dropped from over 40% to just 13% of sales from live events. I mean, they did recoup a little bit through art fair OVRs that made about 9%, but still, you know, the share of sales from fairs halved. Um, and we saw the opposite, of course, happening online. That was the other side of the coin. Online sales were, were up in share. Um, but it's interesting, you know, although sales through fairs were down, um, people also saved a lot. So it took a lot of pressure off the cost base for a lot of businesses through fairs and travel and not just the, the exhibiting, but all of the entertaining and travel and all the stuff that goes with um, these events. And, you know, a lot of businesses said that, you know, despite the difficulties that they had with sales, that, that you know, they came through it okay. And I think we asked people about how their profitability changed. And although most people's profits were, were down, um, you know, 28% of the, deal, the galleries and dealers we surveyed said they were actually more profitable by reducing some of these costs. So that was a really surprising and very important finding. And I think, um, you know, people have been so kind of heavily reliant on, these events, I think a lot of people now are going to really audit in future what events they attend. They've seen that they can get through the year by reducing costs. They don't have quite as many sales, but the net profit or the net revenues they can they can drive from doing a little bit less is something that they're going to look at in future. And I think every single fair they, that galleries attend is is going to go through the ringer and they're going to just concentrate on the things that they, they think will perform best or give them the best um, outreach for new clients. I think that's one of the things that will be, so, in, in a way, it will be so intriguing about next year's report, won't it? About to what extent we are in a new normal, to what extent this was just a blip. You know, is the art world now going to significantly change? Well, this is the thing. I mean, everybody's saying they're very keen to get back to events, you know, both from the collector and gallery side. But I do think the, you know, people will do it in a different way. And, you know, I, we're, we could be conceivably nearly two years out of our normal calendar and then you've got kind of more of a blank page. You can kind of see, you can introduce something completely new. I mean, the, the only thing, you know, galleries are realizing they can save by, by not maybe attending as many fairs. But the only thing is that a lot of people were saying, a lot of gallerists were saying that they didn't get, it's more difficult to establish new relationships with, with um, collectors. You can get someone to buy from you once online you know if you if you can reach them with with your offering but um to to develop a kind of a long-term relationship from a purely online interactions is, is quite difficult so i think the toll of not having events whether it's fairs or other major exhibitions and other types of events will start taking its toll in terms of refreshing their their client bases in the next kind of year or so because people did rely very heavily on their own established um, clients and we saw that in the survey results that they were most of the sales that they were making were to people that they knew already in 2020. Another thing about next year's report, I guess, will be about the UK significance, because obviously you can't really see the effects of Brexit yet, given that 
the transition period was in place throughout the whole of 2020. And therefore, I imagine you wouldn't be able to detect any trends which relate to Brexit. But will that be something that you're particularly carefully monitoring? Because I noticed that, you know, you still refer to the three main art hubs as the US, the UK and Greater China, for instance. Yeah, no, I think it was obviously a really challenging year for the UK because they had all the pandemic related things with this huge kind of cloud hanging over them of the exit from the European Union. And I mean, it kind of it, it's now in play. So it, I think that the art market especially likes certainty. There's nothing worse than kind of being on the fence slightly. But there is a lot of things to figure out as well. You know, it's not just a kind of a now that the UK is out of the European Union, you know, they can't just kind of dump the directives that they've been party to. It's, it's all has, has to be figured out in the next few years. I mean, one thing about the UK is it's very good at um, international trade. It's it, a lot of the the for example, the import and export trade from the UK is with the US, China and, and areas outside of Europe. But there's a huge amount of businesses that smaller businesses in the UK that are very reliant on intra-EU trade. And this is going to be the thing that they really need to figure out. So it's something that we're definitely going to be watching very closely, both in the global reports and in, you know, with the British art market as well, you know, seeing how this can play out in terms of the British art market and how healthy it is and also how it plays out for Europe you know does Europe become a kind of a a, a lower cost base um, you know there was a lot of hopes pinned on Paris but Paris had uh, France had a tough year as well last year so it's, it's it remains to be seen um, what will happen with the whole of Europe I know my my share of the EU is going to be much smaller next year I kept the UK in this year in some of the um, uh, statistics but that's going to be a big difference is the that EU share is, is much, much smaller without the UK. I wanted to ask you about an art world phenomenon that's emerged really only in the last month or so, which is, the, which is NFTs. And I wonder, you know, to what extent do, does cryptocurrency play a role in your current report? And how might the NFT thing skew your ability to, to report on the general market? If we, if, you, if we have this bubble right now of NFTs really going through the roof, and how, how will that affect how you can report on it next, next year? Is there, is there, I suppose, is there contingency for, for, for crypto to have this massive effect? Um, well, I think the, the whole NFT and blockchain area, I think, for, is very interesting in terms of the very positive implications it has for um, ownership and rights for video and digital artists and, and the collectors that, that collect those segments. I mean, that, that's not really a new thing, I suppose, but it's been gaining a little bit in, in terms of publicity and, and traction. And I think that that's a very positive thing. It's, it's, it's giving collectors reassurance that something that they're buying can be kind of limited edition and original. And I think that's, that's put people off collecting um, digitally based art um, previously they didn't really feel they owned something so this is a very positive um, um, part of developing collecting in this um, medium um, you know I think it's it's really interesting the, the kind of disruptive part of it is is how we consume art you know I think there's when when online sales were taking off in say 2014 2015 there was all these platforms developing they were all saying these are going to disrupt the market but in fact they were just doing exactly what the the offline people did but they're just doing it online whereas this is this is a little bit newer it's it's how we consume art whether we could stream art whether we can the ability to kind of rotate images on your wall by pushing an image instead of you know printing and framing and installing a print i think that that's that's something very exciting i suppose that the, the markets and the platforms selling nfts are slightly you know less um 
relevant in terms of this particular report because we're focusing on galleries and dealers and auction houses. So it's a quite a traditional industry report. Um, but I suppose that, that what, what we're actually seeing is that, you know, the report has never covered um, artists' direct sales or collector-to-collector sales. So what we're really going to need to look at, whether it's in this report or in something completely different, is, you know, if there's so much activity going on outside galleries and dealers and auction houses, um, do we measure that and, and how do we do that? I mean, for me, there's two big issues. It's, you know, do we include sales? We've, we've traditionally excluded, you know, these kind of artist direct sales and all of this stuff on platforms. And every time I check these platforms, my jaw drops at the amount of activity and kind of money, whether it's crypto or, or not, going changing hands. Um, and also, you know, a big question is, you know, what, what do we include and exclude? What, what's art and what's not art? And I've kind of, I sidestepped that by just focusing on what galleries and auction houses sell. But if we were to move to these platforms, um, I couldn't really dodge that question. We'd have to figure out what, what is. And that's a very difficult question that, that I'm not kind of probably qualified to answer. But it's a hugely interesting area and it's absolutely not going away. So it's something that we have to consider, you know, whether it's dealt with separately, whether it's dealt with in this report, whether my 50 billion is getting a smaller and smaller and everything going on outside it is getting bigger. I mean, I think that's something that's that's has to be faced. You know, I think it's it's a very interesting development. I love the idea that next year's report might have a philosophical element of trying to figure out what is or what isn't. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Okay, well, Claire, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about the report. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. The Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report is free to download on the Art Basel and UBS websites. In a moment, I talk to Dawn Addis about Marcel Duchamp and Jakob Fenger from Superflex discusses a work by Sildo Morelles in the Tate Collection. But first, here are some of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. The veteran photographer David Allen Harvey has announced his resignation from Magnum Photos after the agency's board voted to permanently remove him, the first time Magnum has agreed to remove a member in its 76-year history. As Tom Seymour writes, Harvey took the decision to resign before a general vote across the Magnum membership, scheduled for this week. In a statement, Magnum made clear that the agency is willing to accept the testimony of 11 women who have accused Harvey of sexual harassment and abusive behaviour and repeated its apology to the victims and survivors. Harvey denies their accusations and insists on his innocence. France's Culture Minister Rosalind Bachelot announced this week that the country will return a painting by Gustave Klimt, Roses Under the Trees, to the heirs of its previous Viennese owner, Nora Stiasny, who sold it under duress during the Nazi era. Anna Sampson reports that since the work currently hangs in the Musée d'Orsay as part of the National Collection, the restitution will involve a lengthy legal process. It's the first time a work of art from the French National Collection is being restituted. Stiasny was forced to sell the painting in August 1938 to Philip Heusler, a professor acquaintance who was a Nazi party member. Four years later, she and her family were deported and killed by the Nazis. The French state acquired the painting for the future Musée d'Orsay in 1980. And finally, Hong Kong's M Plus Museum is due to open its doors towards the end of the year after more than a decade in the making. As Vivian Chow reports, the museum held a media preview of the completed building, designed by the Swiss architects Herzog and de Meuron, in partnership with TFP Farrells and Arup, last week. The massive project, which has a total area of 65,000 square metres, including 17,000 square metres of exhibition space, will house 33 galleries and three cinemas. 
You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Presenting the biggest names in Impressionist, Modern, Post-War and Contemporary Art, Christie's 20th Century Auctions continue through March, headlined by three live-streamed evening sales on the 23rd. We Are All Warriors, the Basquiat Auction, a single-lot sale of Jean-Michel Basquiat's landmark work Warrior, will be broadcast from Hong Kong, followed immediately by the 20th Century Evening Sale and the Art of the Surreal Evening Sale in London. Led by René Magritte's iconic Le Mois des Vendanges, other highlights include remarkable works by Pablo Picasso, Juan Miró, Francis Bacon, Pierre Soulages and Alexander Calder. The corresponding day and online sales offer a wide range of prints, paintings, sculpture and works on paper from the period. This month, Christie's also proudly announced a new global sustainability initiative, pledging to be net zero by 2030 with a 50% reduction in carbon emissions. Learn more about their commitment to sustainability on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Dawn Addis is Professor Emerita of the History and Theory of Art at the University of Essex and one of the UK's leading scholars of modern art, and particularly Dada and Surrealism. She's the co-author with Neil Cox and David Hopkins of the book in Thames and Hudson's World of Art series dedicated to Marcel Duchamp. The book, like all the World of Art series and introduction to its subject, was first published in 1999 and has now been expanded and updated. In those 20 years, Duchamp's influence has grown exponentially, even despite the fact that it's more than 100 years since he invented the ready-made and made his seminal and mysterious masterpiece The Bride Strip Bear by her bachelor's even, or The Large Glass. So I spoke to Dawn about Duchamp's enduring relevance. Dawn, I'd like to begin by asking you how difficult it is to write a book of this length about such a complex artist as Duchamp. Well, it has been very difficult, but I was vastly helped by my two colleagues. It's it's actually a book written by three people, by myself, Neil Cox and David Hopkins both of whom were actually my students originally but they know uh, uh, you know they know a great deal about about Duchamp and a great deal more than I do in certain respects so the three of us wrote it together and when we came to revise it last year for the new world of art series we found we could hardly remember who had written which chapter and and, and so we were very close indeed uh, in our in our writing and that that hugely helped because one needs several different perspectives on Marcel Duchamp because he is an extraordinarily complex and elusive figure, although he's also probably now the most easily recognised artist um, of the 20th century. That's true. The elusiveness is key, isn't it? Because one of the things I'm really struck by when reading the chapter on the large glass, for instance, that extraordinary work that he made between 1915 and 1923, that still it eludes explanation so much. It's so complex. There are so many references. Duchamp was so nomic in some of his pronouncements about it. In a way, that's what makes him so intriguing, isn't it? This, this, that, elu- that very elusiveness. I agree. I think that his his elusiveness is absolutely key to it. And and with the large glass, which is which is an astonishing work because it it goes on giving. I mean, you know, you you look at it. I've been looking at it for fifty years, whatever it is. I, I mean, it's still fascinating, and I've become interested in very different aspect of art recently, which is abstraction. And the large glass is also one of the great works in the abstract canon. You know, almost always it's it's dealt with in terms of the of you know the way Duchamp wrote his notes to accompany it. 
So, so it's an, it's a very it's a very strange work. I mean, and its origins go back to 1912, roughly. So it's well over a hundred years, and it's still there, up among the most puzzling and fascinating and, and absorbing works that I know. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was the way, to to a certain extent, Duchamp has, even though he has become as famous as you say. To a certain extent, with that fame, with that sense that he is the most important artist of the 20th century for now, it it seems to me there's also a caricature that's emerged of Duchamp, which is the Duchamp of the found object. And when you come to something like The Large Glass, the complexity of that work and, and how very different it is from those found objects that he was creating at more or less the same time is really clear to me. So I wonder if, if it's also important now in, with this book to stress the complexity of Duchamp, to stress how various his activities were. It's very problematic in a way that Duchamp has been reduced to a sort of single line caricature uh, with, with uh, the ready-mades and especially Fountain because he, he is so diverse um, and he is so, in, in some ways, he's contradictory, actually. I mean, you know, that he, he rejects painting as something that is, you know, purely appealing to the eye, but he's fascinated by optics and optical illusions. I mean, just to take one example of it. So he's extremely varied, extremely diverse, and he opened up so many things that people have subsequently followed. And not always is his sort of originary status recognised. Another contradiction about Duchamp is this idea that he is in some ways anti-art and yet he's had this extraordinarily profound influence. And it seems to me that that's crucial, isn't it? So he's liberated so many artists while many others see him as being a sort of death knell for traditional art. Oh, yes. He is regarded as as basically the demon by by a lot of people who think that he kind of ruined the whole story of of art. And the whole question of art and anti-art, you know, in, in a way an awful lot of things circulate round that. And he himself said he preferred really to talk about an art. In other words, no art at all. It's not a matter of, you know, art and its opposite anti-art, but, but of actually thinking in a way that doesn't limit you to a certain kind of practice and a certain kind of medium. That's somehow the way I, I see it, basically. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about the, about his... Um, resistance to the to the retinal, as he put it, because he he cited art after Courbet, didn't he, as this very problematic retinal art, art obsessed with vision. What did he propose as an alternative? Was it simply conceptualism, as it's been stated, or was it much more complex than that? I, I think when he made those statements about art becoming too retinal, the retinal frisson, what he was actually proposing as an alternative was not at all straightforward. And I'm not at all sure he set out necessarily with, with an idea of exactly what he wanted to do, um, though you can certainly see the large glass and the way the large glass was planned as part of a, a reaction against the retinal frisson, because there he is actually creating something that exists both in words and visually. You know, the, the notes were written to accompany the large glass, like a sort of encyclopedia or something, although they are extremely, extremely confusing and elusive. But I think he said sort of considerable nostalgia that painting once used to have other functions. You know, it could it could be sort of moral or tell a story and so on. And I think he's, in a say, he's trying to restore something of that diversity to, uh, to painting um, in the large glass. I mean, the large glass in some ways is seen as a sort of great statement about about um, sexual relations, about eroticism, and that's that's one very key aspect of his of his own interests. 
I think Duchamp's sense that art was being restricted in some way, it was being kind of driven down a, a one-way street, which you could say in a way in the 20th century it was when you ended up with Clement Greenberg, but he, he actually wanted to open it out and to restore it to something, but he wasn't saying, oh, I want art to be political, to be moral and so on. He was just looking at what might be possible. Can you frame Duchamp's work within those fields of morality, the political, the religious? Because again, you know, we talked about how elusive he is. You can't quite squarely say that is an object which has a political significance or a moral, it's, is making a moral point. Oh, no, I don't think you can, you can actually situate him at all in, in, the, in those contexts. Actually, he makes it impossible for you to do so. But at the same time, he... He is always very aware, even if sometimes it's very hidden. I mean, it's buried in the notes. But he's, he's aware of, of certain sort of great traditions, great mythical traditions, if you like, such as Christianity. And so you do have religious references in the large glass, but that doesn't make it a religious painting. <laughs> so we talk about the, the found objects then, because this is, this as, as I say, has become the sort of thing he's best known for now because it was adopted by so many artists, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century. What was he intending to do when he made, the, when he made those works? And what did he say his intentions were? Well, the ready-mades indeed have probably become the, the thing for which he's best known, though usually for the wrong reasons. And um, I think it's very important to go back to the beginning and the first ones because the first ones weren't made as art at all. They were simply chosen. I mean, he you know he took these objects into his studio, and I think one of the uh, one of the triggers, if you like, for this this action was futurist sculpture. And Duchamp was interested in futurism, and he was interested in the manifesto where Boccioni talks about using different materials. And of course, the futurists always wanted to include motion. I mean, they wanted to make their work alive. They wanted to bring them to life, bring them into the real world. And so Duchamp, with his sort of typical, you know, cutting to the quick, if you like, put a bicycle wheel on a stool and spun it. So there is a moving sculpture for you. The bottle rack also has its own various links, but he didn't think of them as art. He wasn't making them into a work. And the first reference to that really comes when he writes to his sister from New York. He went to New York in 1915 and he'd left his studio basically untouched. And so he wrote to his sister and said, look, if you go to my studio, you will find there a bottle rack and, and the bicycle wheel on a stool. And I want you to take them and I, I want them to be treated as what he calls sculpture toute faite, ready-made sculpture. And he gives her instructions on writing a little inscription on, on them. Unfortunately, they'd already been thrown away when the studio was cleared, and so they don't exist, those, those first objects. But he said, I'm going to... Writing to his sister, he said, I'm going to carry on with a few more things in the same vein. Now, it's kind of taken for granted by many people, I mean, including André Breton, who was the, I mean, the great leader of the Surrealist movement and a close friend of Duchamp, that Duchamp was elevating everyday objects into the world of art. Well, I actually, I, I really don't agree with that because I think they should remain in a kind of limbo, I mean, between heaven and hell, if you like. Which are they? I mean, they, they are asking a question and it's the asking of the question that's the key thing to my mind. And it's, it's, it's about that choice, isn't it? That, that, that the idea he chose the object. When it comes to Fountain, there's that statement about creating a new thought for an object. 
what did that mean in practice? Because as you say, these were works in his studio, they weren't exhibited, they, they were lost, you know, and so there's a curious sort of sense of where Duchamp placed them within his own canon, and did he, did he see them, did he see them as part of his legacy to a certain degree? I don't think he saw them necessarily as, as a kind of united body of of work with the same sort of purpose and function and so on. I think they tended to have different functions. The, the, the famous, pretty well the only statement about published statements about the ready-made is the one that appeared in conjunction with Fountain in 1917. And indeed he says that, you know, that the, that the, the idea is to give a new thought. The object is chosen and it is, uh, the purpose is to give a new thought to that object. He also says that the only works of art America uh, has given the world uh, plumbing and her bridges. So, but but there was a very specific purpose to the to the fountain. Um, he had previously actually put a couple of ready maids into an exhibition, um, but nobody noticed that they were there. So, that, so that wasn't a, you know it, it wasn't a great success. I mean, he he let things take their time. That's one of the fascinating things about Duchamp. He seems to have allowed things to, you know, he he didn't necessarily want immediate recognition. He was happy to go underground. But the fountain episode was was the one occasion really when he when he sort of pushed the ready-made out into the public domain um, very deliberately. And that was because he wanted to challenge the claim of the exhibition of independent artists, the independence exhibition, that anybody could send in a work on paying the entry fee six dollars I think and the work would be accepted so anything could go in now he had a particular kind of grudge in a way against the idea of a of, of a an independent exhibition that was meant to be free for anyone to enter something but in fact things got um, turned down because of his own experience in Paris a few years earlier in 1912 when he had sent his very famous painting the new descending staircase to the Indépendant in Paris, and it was to go in the Cubist room, organised by Glaze and Metzinger. And they were appalled when they saw this picture coming because it looked like a kind of futurist painting, not a Cubist painting at all, or quite wrong. You don't have a new descending staircase. And so his, his brothers, who were also on the hanging committee there, were sent to tell him that he had to change the title or, to, or change the painting or do something, you know, but change the title, it wasn't acceptable. And so he immediately went off and removed the painting and refused to exhibit with them. And from that point, really, he kind of withdrew from making a living as an artist. He withdrew from being the professional artist. Now, when he arrived in the United States, he was already tremendously famous because of the new Descending the Staircase, which had been shown at the Armoury exhibition and had, had gone down a bomb in, in the States. I mean, controversial, but, you know, he was famous. And so he immediately became part of the of the world of the, you know, small world of those who were interested in contemporary art, modern art. And so he became one of the members of the committee organising the independence. So he is on the committee of this independence exhibition, which is welcoming anyone to send in anything as long as they pay the entry fee. The day before the exhibition opened, a urinal arrived in the exhibition halls, some kind of plinth, and lying on its back. And there was an emergency meeting called of the committee members uh, to say, do we accept this or not? Now, 
nobody knew that it was Duchamp who was responsible for it. He was he didn't tell anyone. It was signed R Mutt, R M U T. And so there was a there was a long a long debate. Uh, I think chaired by Rockwell Kent, who who suspected something was going on. Um, Duchamp resigned. Walter Ehrensberg resigned when they decided to reject this thing, not to accept to show it. So it wasn't shown. It was hidden behind a curtain or something. Then the object, the urinal, was rescued. Nobody quite knows who took it. Who nobody quite knows who brought it to the Independence in the first place, nor who took it away again to Alfred Stieglitz's studio, where it was photographed very beautifully. And Stieglitz writes to Georgia O'Keeffe saying, I've, I've photographed this, and Duchamp and his friends brought it in, you know, and, uh, it's, it, and it appeared, this photograph by Stieglitz, in the magazine The Blind Man, the second issue of The Blind Man, which Duchamp, uh, Rocher and Beatrice Wood edited. And that the first issue of The Blind Man had been a celebration of the American Independence Exhibition, saying, hooray, modern arts reached the United States. The second one was this expose saying, you know, they say anyone who pays an entry fee can exhibit anything, but they turned down Richard Mutt's fountain. What was wrong with it? You know, it's not, a, not immoral. You know, it's not obscene. What on earth is wrong? Why, why can't this be shown? It's, it's an object which has been given a new thought. Not saying it's been turned into a work of art. <laughs> And so that was the fountain scandal. Right. Now, so let's talk about the, the, a new scandal that's emerged around fountain in recent years, which is concerning its authorship, because there's a new theory that's emerged in recent years about uh, fountain, which says that the author was, in fact, Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, who is a contemporary of Duchamp's in New York at that time. You very clearly said so far that, that the work is by Duchamp. So tell us why you think that. Uh, yes, well, um, Julian Spaulding and, and Glyn Thompson took the idea from a biography by Irene Gamel of the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, where she claims that Elsa was the originator of Fountain, with with, with very little um, evidence, actually none really. <laughs> uh, but then Spaulding and Thompson pick it up and and turned it into quite a campaign, um, which which has been picked up. I mean, you know, pe- people were perhaps in a way only too happy to find something that seemed to prick the <laughs> the, the Duchamp balloon. Uh, it really is a great mistake. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of you know, women artists who have been sidelined and been marginalised in the history of 20th century art, and Elsa von Freitag Longhoven is certainly one of them. She was a kind of very eccentric and rather wild character who fell in love with Duchamp, and then she fell in love with William Carlos Williams and wrote these tremendous love love poems to him. And then he was terrified and, and had to withdraw. And, and she was she very much accepted in New York as a sort of as a Dadaist in a little bit later, in 1920, 1921. But at this period, she wasn't. I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of trying to give the background to it. So she, she really was not responsible for it. I mean, it, everything about Fountain fits in a way, with what we know about about Duchamp's attitude to the ready-made, what we know about his attitude to the art world, or attitude to juried exhibitions and non-juried exhibitions. And it's it's a sort of brilliant move, and it fits within the whole idea of the ready-made, I mean, which, which did transform, if you like, the way you think about art and non-art. But if, for instance, just on the technical aspects, mm. isn't, it, isn't it right that basically the Spalding and Thompson theory is based on a mistranslation of what Duchamp had written? 
Yes, well, the, the, the mistranslation was originally Gamel's, uh, only Gamel's mistranslation, which was from a letter to his sister saying, which is the only reference that Duchamp really makes to anyone about, about Fountain. I mean, there are mysteries around this thing, but the only reference that Duchamp makes is a letter to his sister where he says a female friend of his has sent in as sculpture has sent in a urinal to the Independence Exhibition as a sculpture. Now, the mistranslation was, or it was a misreading of the letter. Uh, Gamble and then Spalding and Thompson say that Duchamp wrote, a female friend sent me a urinal as a sculpture. And that difference allowed the misappropriation, if you like, of Fountain to the female friend uh, who was supposed to be Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. In fact, the female friend was somebody quite different. It was Louise Norton, who is equally forgotten, and I would very much like to rehabilitate her. But she was the person whose address is on the um, the label that was attached to Fountain when it was sent in to the independence. It was Louise Norton. Right, and, and she sent it in on Duchamp's behalf because the anonymity was crucial to exactly. Duchamp. Right. Yes, exactly. I mean, I mean, Duchamp couldn't let it be known that, that he was the one undermining an exhibition that he was publicly supporting. It had to be anonymous. He kept up the anonymity for some time, actually, afterwards. And his great friend Catherine Dreyer wrote and said, well, I, you know, I wish you'd let me know. I, I, I didn't understand. That's why I voted against the thing being exhibited. <laughs> if I'd known, uh, yes. Mm. But, but, of course, one of, the, one of the crucial factors about all this is, is that... that Spalding and Thompson's contention is that by, if you suggest that Duchamp is no longer the author of The Fountain, which has become so synonymous with him and so famous, you therefore undermine his authority as this influential figure in in the history of art. But of course, as you've already pointed out, his influence is so broad. It goes so far beyond Fountain, in fact. Fountain is just the tip of the iceberg, really. Yes, I think think if it was just just fountain it would it wouldn't make a huge amount of difference actually i mean you know they've picked up on this because it sort of symbolizes something about the you know the way duchamp is taken as the father of conceptual art and that that is something they both absolutely hate i mean you know they're, they're both famous for disliking modern art really <laughs> and 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 of course duchamp is the is is the prime offender there but it doesn't it doesn't as you say make sense really because because duchamp's you know what he did what he achieved and you know, things are still turning up that he made, actually, that we haven't necessarily known about before. There's so much of it that, that I think it, it's not really going to shake it. But because Fountain did become the symbol of something, people have been very ready to, uh, to, you know, to sort of you know, propagate the, this myth that it wasn't Duchamp at all. It's even been taught in art schools, which is actually quite shocking. As you pointed out earlier on, the aim to make sure that women artists who have not been correctly credited is, is a noble one. But to make this an emblematic case for that seems seems wrong because there is, there is actually so much more research to be done and much more worthy research to be done, which actually doesn't isn't based on dodgy scholarship, frankly. Well, well absolutely. I mean, sometimes when, when someone has a very, you know, a sort of passionate commitment to a particular thing, they, they seem to fail to do all the research that's necessary to, to underpin the argument. But it, it's been a very persistent rumour about... Duchamp and Fountain and Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. It, it's it, you know, it's like sort of fake news. It has a it has a rather terrifying life of its own, and I think it, so. We've tried very very hard to answer these accusations and to 
you know, to produce the contrary evidence, which which builds up to a you know considerable case. But like with many of Duchamp's things, that there, there there is there is a kind of mystery about it. Nobody knows exactly how this offence was perpetrated <laughs> at the time. And and there also there are mysteries with a lot of the things that Duchamp made, which seem to be just quite ordinary, like a box to contain the the green box notes. Now. It actually turned. I've seen. I've seen the some of the plans for this. I've seen you know the original, the meticulous way that he has made the details of the of the of the way he's put the words onto the, in, in little strips of copper on the, on the cover of the box. Incredibly careful. He was the most meticulous technician, um, and I think that's very important. And th- and there's more, much more to be done in terms of that kind of thing. Very if you like, I mean, rather rather sort of basic materialist um, study of, of, of the works, but that's important too. And his, his meticulousness as a technician emerged very clearly, didn't it, in that final great work, and, and again, a tremendously mysterious work, Etan Donne, which, which, of course, was a total secret until after his death. So, you know, again, that reveals an, an incredibly and, and actually very profoundly visual experience when you when you see it. Absolutely extraordinary. I have to say, tell a little story here, which is that 1968, the autumn term, 1968, um, I was teaching an entire term about Duchamp to students at Camberwell School of Art. And of course, in that we didn't know about Etan Donnet. I mean, it really looked as if, apart from a few isolated bits and pieces, he'd stopped everything after leaving the large glass definitively unfinished in 1923. Halfway through the term, very sadly, he died. And when he died, the presence of this work was revealed. So I had to revise entirely the whole, <laughs> the whole, you know, <laughs> the whole story um, very, very um, swiftly and rather, anyway, that, 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 that was curious. But, but Etan Donnie indeed is, is, is a, is an extraordinary work, and of course, a lot of people who thought of him as primarily um, a sort of concept, conceptual artist and somebody who worked in a quite abstract way in some, you know, in some respects. You know, the, the revelation about Hetan Donne did upset quite a lot of his, you know, major supporters. You know, who who thought of him as a conceptual artist and as a rather austere artist. And suddenly, there's this three-dimensional thing with a luscious nude lying on twigs. You know, what on earth's going on? But of course. In, in lots of ways, Etan Donnie and the large glass are sort of reverse faces of each other. And, you know, the, the way with the large glass that anybody looking at it is also part of it. You're absorbed in the glass because it's transparent. You can be seen. You're, you're, you're there, um, for one thing. And also the way in the large glass that there are two different perspective systems in the lower half and the upper half. So he's very fascinated by perspective, one of the great traditional ways of constructing a picture. Perspective becomes, in a sense, the, the core sort of guiding structural thing of Etan Donnet because you can't actually walk around it at all. You can only see it from a fixed point. You can only see it by putting your nose up very close to an old wooden door and looking through two tiny holes. And then you see this brilliantly lit landscape with a nude facing. Quite shocking in, in lots of ways. I mean, it sort of had to be hidden because it was quite shocking. But the first thing anybody does when they go up there, and I did it myself, you go there, you put your nose up against the door and you look through these two little holes, you see this and you desperately want to see what's going on around the corner because you can't see her head. So you shift and, of course, you're confronted with a, with a, you know, with a wooden wall. You, can't, you, can't, you can only see it through those two holes. So there are all sorts of things about it. I mean, there are so many things one could, one could raise to talk about here. I mean, you know, the perspective, but also eroticism, 
landscape, photography, different mediums. It's a, it's a very extraordinary work. But it's almost as though, you know, he, there, there are these two major things that he made in his life, the large glass and et on donné, or given. I'm not saying the other things weren't important, they were, but those are two, you know, very, very, very major things which, which have their poetic accompaniment in the notes. But they relate to each other. It's almost as though he had planned his entire life so that it had a pattern. <laughs> Thank you, Dawn, very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Marcel Duchamp by Dawn Addis, Neil Cox and David Hopkins is published by Thames and Hudson and priced £14.99 or $21.95. And do also seek out Calvin Tompkins' biography of Duchamp, published by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The Danish artist collective Superflex have just unveiled a facade for a museum and design centre for the stone manufacturer Arca in the Wynwood area of Miami. It links the colour of currency with the Fibonacci numbers in mathematics. Jakob Fenger is one of the members of Superflex and he's chosen to talk about a work by the Brazilian neo-concretist artist Sildo Morelles, Insertions into Ideological Circuits, Coca-Cola Project, from 1970. You can see an image of the work on our website, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Jacob, you've chosen a work by um, Sildo Morelles. Um, to describe this work, it's quite complex, but have a go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's writing on Coca-Cola bottles, different messages uh, that's being uh, distributed into, into society uh, via the bottles. The reason why, why I chose that work is actually because it's a work that has inspired us quite a lot. Uh, it's done like uh, about the time we were born. Uh, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's a work that shows that artists, of course, artists uh, can work in any medium. Um, but also uh, it shows uh, even more that messages can come within every medium as well. Um, so in this case... Uh, uh, it's like a hack into another system, but and and, and using that hack to distribute messages, uh, and I think it's a genius way of uh, of doing that. That's right. So basically, on those Coca-Cola bottles, he's basically imprinting them with messages. Like so, for instance, on on the on them is effectively a manifesto for the work. So one of the messages is that they are they're done to register informations and critical opinions on bottles and return them into circulation. And this is a key thing, so that they are political messages. They are, for instance, one of the messages is how to make a Molotov cocktail out of the bottle, right? So they're, so they're deeply subversive. And they, as you say, they were done within a military dictatorship. Yeah. And, and I think it's, a, yeah, as I said, it's, it's a genius way of, uh, of, of hacking the system. And, and you're living in, in hard times where it seems uh, impossible to, to uh, come across with the message. All the medias are con super controlled um, by by the authorities, and and then you find these small gaps in places where you can actually still communicate. And I think that is, as a as a model of how to work as an artist, I think it's really brilliant. It also says that I mean he I think actually uh, still to himself is saying this as well that that uh, it's not like a protected. Uh, area i mean anybody can do these kind of things and that was really absolutely patently clear in the work isn't it because the whole point of it is that they go back into circulation and so the people anybody that uses these bottles effectively becomes the artist transmitting the message exactly 
And then he did another one actually uh, six years later, where he took the he did a similar thing with banknotes, because actually what what he found out was of course Coca Cola bottles has a pretty large reach, uh, but banknotes are going even further. Um, and and he was doing this. Uh, there was this journalist called uh, Hasak who was killed uh, in the jail. He was uh, arrested, and the day after he apparently hung himself in the jail. But of course, nobody believed that. And then he made this message, which said something like, uh, "What what happened to Hasak?" And it was stamped on banknotes. I mean, it's a similar approach and similar technique. Um, and I think it's uh, super strong and uh, and. Uh, and a very touching word, actually. I mean, what I like about it as well is it's not just transmitting a message. He's really thought about the form yeah. and the fact that, you know, he said the the message disappears, of course. Once, once the Coke, once this brown liquid, which is the background to this white lettering disappears, then the message disappears. And it requires it that it to re-enter the system precisely to reanimate the work. So he's, he, Morellish is a genius in that sense. And he's, you know, not only is it politically active, but it, it's also thinking very carefully about the formal properties of the work, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so in many ways, it's a, it's a, it's a very smart work. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for that. And of course, it's, it relates to a lot of things that we have done also, um, that where you actually go in and, and, and uh, use use different tactics to come across with a message. We actually spent quite some time in Brazil where we, we did a soft drink with some farmers in, in, the, in the Amazon. Uh, and these, these farmers were sort of, uh, they were making the Corona berries and, and uh, there was this big corporations all of a sudden buying. They used to buy from them and then all of a sudden they changed and they bought, bought from somebody else and then they were kind of left alone. Um, and they felt completely misused by these companies because the city where they're from, Maues, uh, was uh, known for the center of Guarana. So actually these big companies, they will ship Guarana back to Maues just to get stamped and then send it in to put it in their soft drinks and, and, and so forth. Um, and we met these farmers and they were like, how, how, do, you, how do we come across with a message uh, in this uh, system? And what we did with them was actually we did a counter soft drink where we took the logo of the big corporation and turned it upside down and put it into circulation again with their drink. Um, so it was a way of uh, using, you know, network society, blah, 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 all those kind of things uh, as a medium and as a force uh, where you can actually, without having a lot of money and without having a lot of um, uh, production means and stuff, you can actually, you can actually produce stuff and, and you can get your message out. Right. What was the reaction to that? Well, there was uh, a lot of reactions. Actually, there was one of the more tough ones was we were showing this work, I think, first time at the Venice Biennium, um, and, and that was all fine. And then we later on was invited to do it at the Sao Paulo Biennium. When we, were, we were invited by the curators to show it, uh, Jose Roca, and uh, everything was planned out. And then when we came and supposed to show it. And then before the opening, the, the president of the Biennial, he actually uh, censored it and said, this is not uh, a work of art. And he said, uh, and it doesn't even taste good or something like that. He was kind of being a little bit ridiculous. Um, so he actually banned us from being part of the Biennial. But that didn't stop us. And I think we use similar techniques as Sildo in the way that we, whenever you are, confronted with this situation, you just have to kind of use that system to go against it. So what we did there was that we, we, um, 
we blacked out the label completely uh, because he said it, it might be uh, a copyright issue. And so, I mean, he was saying these kind of things that didn't really, they were not based in anything, in any solid argument, but we kind of took it as that. So we uh, we start to do this kind of self censorship, which is also a very strong message. Not not at least in in Brazil. Um, so it became the top of the news. Uh, so this president was on the front and and censoring, and you know that that's just not the thing to do. Right. So in a, in a way, we we try to use similar tactics. Actually, I mean these days there's no really uh, alternative. It seems to to the system that we're living within. Uh, and and the consequence of that, for us at least, is that we need to work with that system, and but we need to still uh, question that system and 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 use that system to question uh, itself and our our role in that system. Jakob, thank you so much for telling us about this work. You're welcome. Thank you for calling. To read more about Sildo Morelesh, visit tate.org.uk and to explore Superflex's Like a Force of Nature, the installation in Miami, visit superflex.net. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so and please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. A new series of our other podcast, A Brush With, begins on the 24th of March and you can also listen to that wherever you're listening now. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julian Mihauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Claire, to Dawn and to Jakob and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.